Good morning. So good to see all of you this morning. And I want to add my welcome if you are here for the first time and you're new to Mountain View. So good to have you. Welcome. We'll never call you out or embarrass you, but we just want to say welcome to you. And and if I haven't met you, my name is Clark. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of serving with just an amazing team of guys and just so grateful to be able to get in the Word together again in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So grab your Bibles and turn there. This is a the second week of four weeks in this, the longest chapter in John's Gospel, 71 verses, and we're going to hit up through verse 40, pick up verse 22, and go through verse 40 this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we will always have it on the screen, but God's Word is so good, and we love it when it's like in your lap and you can look at it, so grab a Bible from the, from the pew there and turn to page 838, and it'll be right there as we continue in John's Gospel. I remember as a kid visiting um, Orlando, Florida a few times where my, uh, my grandmother lived and my aunt and uncle and my cousins lived, and, and I have lots of fond memories from, from that time. I think we went once or twice as I was a child living in California, and, and um, some of the memories are like, of course, Disney World, right? You've all been to, everybody's here has been to Disney World, right? Uh, most of us. Uh, um, one of my fond memories was uh, fresh grapefruit literally in the backyard. Both my grandmother and aunt and uncle had a grapefruit tree. And I'm talking big, juicy, sweet, ripe grapefruit from Florida. And you could go out and I stuffed my face with grapefruit. And, but one of the most odd memories I have is of this this place in Orlando, Florida called Gatorland. Anybody been to Gatorland before? Somebody came up to me and said, you just brought me back to seventh grade this morning, you know, and um, this, they actually call this their historic Gator Mouth entrance right here. Um, it kind of looks like paper mache, and it's this 110 um, acre alligator and wildlife preserve. And, and my memory is uh, of all of the different things in there, but right inside this door was, uh, was a souvenir machine called a Moldorama machine. Anybody seen these before? I heard somebody go, yeah, it's anybody with gray hair saying, yeah, I've seen these. Um, you can see them around the country. There's probably, I think, 60 or 70 machines left. Uh, I saw one of them on eBay this week for $55,000. So if you want to go grab that, you can do it. These are vintage uh, souvenirs. And um, your parents, you know, could put the money in and, and you could look through the glass and almost feel like you were involved in the process. There was these two metal arms that would come together and this mold would come together and they would they kind of thrust or inject this molten plastic into it and psh, all the sounds. And then, and then within 30 seconds, they would drop out this, you know, plastic alligator. Um, now, ironically, I'm working on this this week on Tuesday. I'm kind of thinking through my story here and remembering this. And, and over comes an email from, I don't know how good you are with email notifications when you're trying to focus. I'm not that great. And this email comes over from my good friend, John Nelson. And he's like, I can't be at Bible study this week because I'm in Orlando, Florida for a business trip. And I quickly figure out he is six miles from Gatorland. And so I'm like, I'm telling him this story, we're laughing and all that. And so he finishes his conference up on Tuesday, and what does he do but go to Gatorland. And this is like vintage from Gatorland this week, um, straight from the Moldorama machine. Um, but I found out this week that, that the inventor actually didn't create this thing in the 50s uh, to make money or to make souvenirs. He created this as a way, he was an engineer, he was an inventor, as a way to fix and remake his own nativity scene figures. Yeah, we're, we're a long way away from baby Jesus right here, right? <laughs> 
But it's interesting, I, I thought of that, like at one point, he was literally making Moldorama Jesus figures. And I thought, as we came out of the text last week, and we saw what the crowds do, and even the disciples to some degree, it's like, that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we're prone to do with Jesus, is we try to make him into our image, put him into a mold that is, you know, safe and, and careful, and we can hold him in our lives like we want, and how we want, like trying to put the, the raw power of an eight-foot alligator into a plastic toy that won't even last through the day. It's how we do it with Jesus as well. And as we go through this chapter, we find the crowds doing just that, trying to make Jesus into what they think he is rather than realizing he is the I am that God spoke in the burning bush to Moses about. He is the realization of God on the earth, the walking on the flesh on the earth, and they're trying to make him into something else, something that they want him to be, something that they think they need in their own way. So what I trust we'll learn this morning and continue to learn through this chapter, and here's what I hope you'll take away, the main point is that, friends, we have the privilege and the call on our lives to follow Jesus on his terms and not our own. His terms, but not our own. Every single one of us in this room this morning are prone, because we're human beings, to form Jesus into something that we want to make him safe, somebody easy to follow, somebody that makes me comfortable, but yet we don't want to surrender to his lordship in our lives. And so may he help us this morning get all the more there, trusting that he is the the ultimate satisfaction, the the, the bread of life that gives us life. And as, as such, we surrender to him. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and you might have it, everyone, how? Abundantly. He pours out himself for us, and so our hearts just cry out in response, Lord Jesus, would you just mold my heart, mold me to who you are, and not in any way the other way around, amen? Don't you desire just to follow Jesus for what he wants and for what he gives? This should be like breathing to us. Jesus, not my way, but your way. Jesus, not my will, but your will. Jesus, what a delight. It's my joy to follow you on your terms and not my own. So would you show me? Would you teach me? Would you help me to trust? And, and again, this isn't just our idea. You know, here at Mountain View, we just want to come under the word of God. I'm not throwing out ideas to you that are our opinions. This is John the Apostle who God carried along by his spirit to write to us and show us how this comes about. So let's look at three simple observations this morning. I know, shocker, a sermon with three points. Um, We're going to do the same thing we usually do. Um, Two observations and one really exhortation or invitation to all of us at the end. Notice, first of all, how the crowds are confused, just like us, with human desires. The crowds are confused with human desires. Most of this right here at the beginning is kind of John setting us up with the context and where we've come from. It says, on the next day, that's the day after, Jesus fed thousands from five loaves and two fish, and he walks across the water, comes to the other side of the sea, and it says, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and yet Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone alone. So they're scratching their head and going like, how did Jesus get across the sea? Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So remember, he fed them so they could have as much as they wanted. 
And then there were 12 baskets left over. So there's the abundance of Jesus creating and recreating somehow bread and fish to feed thousands. Verse 24, so these people are going to follow him. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum. Remember last week we talked about how the people are going to be so intrigued with Jesus, they're going to keep following him. And so they get in droves in different boats and they come across the sea. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So there's a curiosity here. So how did this happen? How did you get across the sea here for some reason? So now here we are, verse 26 is where Jesus really starts to launch into the deep, abiding spiritual lesson of this whole chapter. And he's, you always know, you know, when you're reading the Gospels and and you come to a place where the crowds ask a question and then Jesus completely ignores it, you're like, all right, something's up, something's going to come. Because he's got an agenda, right? He's the I am, he's the Lord, he's the bread of life. So he's in control and and he's going to answer them. So Jesus answered them, uh, not, um, yeah, I came late at night and I walked across the water because I created water and I can do that. I didn't need a boat. He doesn't explain any of that. He just says, truly, truly, which you all know means importance, pay attention, sit up, forget about the loss of an hour of sleep, pay close attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He knows their hearts. And their desire to follow him is the most human base motivation there could be. Because you filled our guts, we're going to keep going after you, Jesus. You want me because I filled your bellies and nothing more. He's cutting it straight with these people. And it's going to just get harder and harder as the chapter goes on, um, the reality of the truth that Jesus brings. Um, It's probably safe to say they were hungry again. Right? It's the next day, and it's breakfast time, so who should we look to for a meal? The guy that gave it to us yesterday, out of five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, you want the physical bread I can provide, but I'm going to turn this whole thing around to show you the ultimate spiritual bread that you need, the bread that leads to eternal lives. You want a king who can fill your guts, not feed your soul. We all know this same tendency shows up in our own hearts, doesn't it? I don't know where you are at in your spiritual journey this morning. Maybe you came in uh, today, you're going, I got daylight savings, but I still, I'm still kind of interested in finding out maybe this church thing. I'm going to check it out. I saw that building over there. I'm going to go, go step in there. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're going like, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about who he is. Um, Or maybe you're like at the front edge of a walk with Christ, and you've just entered into a love relationship with him. He has so much in store. He is so beautiful and glorious and wondrous, and we're going to see all of that this morning. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, and my my hope and my trust is that, that we will just delight in him, and we will rejoice in him, and we will love him with all of our hearts so that all of these other moldorama ideas just fade away. And we grow in our love for him. But you know there's competition in your heart, right? You know that at times you feel like, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but then there's other things that that might contradict that or get in the way. How does that competition look? What does it look like? Let me give you some examples. Maybe, Maybe Jesus on your terms could possibly look a little like this. And all I had to do is start with my own heart, like look at my own heart and what what tendencies I have. And but here's some symptoms, maybe of Jesus on your terms rather than Jesus on his terms. Um, 
First of all, you want peace, protection, and provision. You want all that Jesus gives, but you don't really want the sacrifice that he's called you to. That's one. Um, You want comfort, the comfort that he gives, and the peace, and the rest, but not the battle against sin that he says we're in day by day, moment by moment. Um, You want the joy, and you want the delight that he sustains, but you don't want the, the sorrow over those who are lost and without hope in this world, right in your neighborhood, right in your life, who need to know about Jesus the one who is the, the, the giver of all life, the satisfier of every part of the soul. Here's a tough one. It's really good for us, good for my heart. Um, you, you want others to treat you like they know the gospel, forgiveness, grace, kindness, mercy, but you find it really, really hard to do that for them. Is anybody, am I alone in this? No. Oh. You want eternal life, but you don't want this life on Jesus' terms. You want to live it on your own. Maybe those are some of the symptoms. Maybe you're still sort of trying to squeeze Jesus into life, tailor-making him to, I mean, we all are to some degree, right? We want to walk out of here and Holy Spirit, show me how that's true of me because I want to be all the more aligned with you and your affections and mine as I walk into this life. Maybe you're trying to fit him alongside other earthly priorities and wants and all kinds of counterfeit pleasures when he says, I give you all. Christ wants. That's not who we are. That's not the true follower of Jesus. We live on his terms and not our own. And and he says to us, under my rule and reign, you are forgiven. You are welcome to the table to feast where I nourish your soul to eternal life. A life where he says in this chapter, I will never hunger again. I will never thirst again. Now, uh, Jesus is just going to blow this whole spiritual lesson wide open here, okay? And the lesson is this. You want the physical bread I can provide, but what I want is for you to trust me. I want you to surrender your lives for the spiritual bread. And who is that? It's Jesus in your life. That leads to eternal life. So yes, the crowds are confused with human desires, just like all of us. But secondly, Jesus is clear with his heavenly call. He is clear with his heavenly call. Um, Step by step, Jesus is just going to make this more and more clear what this bread discussion is all about. Um, uh, Historians and, and, and Bible teachers all across the ages have called this the bread of life chapter. And here is where Jesus starts to make it very clear why that's the case. Verse 27, Jesus says to them, do not work, and we're going to see that word four times down through this little conversation, uh, the same word work, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, don't don't strive after all the stuff of Jesus, all the stuff that will fade. Don't look for things like the free meal I gave you yesterday. There's so much more to satisfy you in this life. And and this is not a suggestion by Jesus here. Um, You gotta look closely at the verse and the things that he says about himself. This is coming, we've already learned this in John's gospel, that when Jesus, his favorite title for himself is Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter seven and marks him as God on the earth. 
God in the flesh, walking before the people, standing before the people. He has all authority and all power to bring eternal life. And that I don't know if you noticed also, he says, the Son of Man will give this to you for, the reason he can do that is because God the Father has set his seal. What's that? Well, that's that wax seal on a letter that proves what? Where it came from. And the Father has set his seal on Jesus. So don't miss this. There is, there is power and authority from Jesus all over what he's saying. And so the reality is we have to listen this isn't just a book with like words that were coming over. This is, this is the Son of Man sealed by the Father, speaking, living, moving. It's God's word to us this morning. God's word to men. Now, if you were betting, a betting person, would you say the people got the message? Or would you say they didn't get it? I think most of us understand they usually don't get it, the crowds. Then they said, I literally just had somebody send me their world score. I can't believe I just saw that on my notes. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the same word here, the works of God? What must we be do, do to be doing the works of God? So they grab a hold of Jesus' word and they say, okay, we want to work too. What must we do? What part of this is up to Jesus, is up to us? Jesus, give us the steps, give us the, the order of things. Um, for this so-called food that leads to eternal life. Now, here is where Jesus' answer means everything to us this morning. So I'm gonna ask you, like, if you're right now suffering from a lack of an hour of sleep, or maybe you're, like, daydreaming, or that happens all the time, I get it. I'm a listener also. Can I ask you to dial in here with me for just a second? Like, really dial in. Are you with me? Yeah? A little more, a little more. Are you with me? Okay, all right. Jesus' answer is going to cut straight through the confusion, and we've got to get this. What he says next is so foundational to understanding the very nature of a love relationship with God, and, and, and I've missed it for many years. You miss it many times. People who follow Christ for years miss this. What is the work of God? What is it? Where is it that you are to expend effort in the Christian life? Where is it that you're to, to reach down as deep as you can and go, I wanna, I'm going to work as hard as I can at this? Here's what it is. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Your work your labor is to trust, full stop. Your work is to trust. This is, you want something to do, something to work at, something to get at. If you're like me, you do. Like, I love getting at stuff. Like, give me the check boxes, you know, and the things that I can accomplish. Jesus says, this is where you expend effort. As God is at work in you, in his gracious and merciful kindness to forgive you and to, to give you life, your work, your labor is to surrender. It's to yield. It's to forfeit control. Let me ask you guys, is that hard enough work to do? It sure is. Because I'm going to wake up and reset every day, and I'm going to think, well, I think I can do this. No, Jesus says reset every day on your knees, on your face, surrendered to him, saying, I got nothing without you, Jesus. I got nothing. 
This is how we start out our relationship, our love relationship with Jesus, and it's how we continue in it. Day by day, moment by moment, faithfulness to the call of God on his terms and not our own. Church family, don't miss that like the people did that were with Jesus. Look what they say, verse 30. They said to him then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? And your head should just be exploding at this point. Like what? Are you kidding? What work? Same word. Jesus, you told us to work. They missed what his work was. And now he's going to ask them, they're going to ask him, what work are you going to do? Do something else to prove we should trust you. And check this out, verse 31, they're gonna start teaching Jesus the Old Testament. The book that was written pointing to him. They say, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He's like, I know, I put it there. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. There, I'd encourage you to read Nehemiah chapter nine, like eight, nine, 10, 11, when you get some time. Because they're reaching back to the days post-exile. So Israel was crushed and, and broken and they were exiled to Babylon and then they were brought back by God's grace. And, and this is a time, now they're quoting from 530 years earlier when the people of God have come back to Jerusalem, the walls have been rebuilt and the nation's being restored. And there's this amazing scene there where there's over 42,000 people gathered in, in worship. And, and they, they read the Bible for like an entire day. They read the, the law of God and Ezra the priest made sense of it. And, and they're recounting the different things that God did through their history to sustain them. And one of those things was Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 15. They're listing all these things in their history. And it says, God gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from out of a rock for their thirst. Isn't this amazing? Does Jesus not know the Old Testament? He's already called himself the living what? Water. And now he's the bread of life. And so he's the sum total of all that God pointed to in those miracles way back in the Old Testament. He's like, okay, keep going. The people are quoting this passage as if to say, Jesus, show us some more. Give us some more bread. Do it more like Moses did back in the day. I mean, it was 40 years that manna fell from heaven. Jesus, you gave us one meal. Come on, give us some more. Show us some more stuff. Should we believe? We'll give us a reason. Doesn't this shock you just a little bit? It would shock us more if it wasn't so much like our hearts, right? God, prove yourself to me. wonder how often it's been me. Maybe I wouldn't say that to God, but I'll take steps in my life where I act like that. What did they just see? What did these people just see the day before? They saw Jesus miraculously feed thousands of them from five loaves and two fish, in some way multiplying bread across the crowd. Don't they realize they're standing before their creator and saying, prove yourself. Show us a reason to believe. If they'd have read just one more verse or remembered, or went back to, like some kid, get the scroll open, go, wait, look what it says here. In verse 16, if they had got there, they might have realized their unbelief. Because verse 16 says, yes, God gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock, but they stiffened their necks and did not obey God's commands. 
They refused to obey. Now catch this. And were not mindful of the wonders of God, the wonders that God performed. What's happening here? They're doing the exact same thing that their ancestors did in the wilderness 530 years later. And they're denying and rejecting the wonders of God now present where? In Jesus. The one who gave them bread and the one who's going to show them he's the bread of life. But once again, isn't it amazing? I just, I just, one of the things I love to do is just go through the Gospels and look how Jesus responds to humans and just try to put myself right in there and go like, I'm so thankful he responds to humans that way because that's me. They're quoting this story and completely rejecting him, and he, but yet he stays peaceful and patient. He's not shocked by this. He's not, he's like, now wait a minute, guys. I know the Old Testament. It's about me. None of that. He says to them, verse 32, okay, let's keep talking about the bread from heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you. Now, look how he switches it from a historical account to now the present reality. He says, yes, Moses did that, but today, here, now, my father gives to you true bread from heaven. What is that? Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Jesus uses that phrase seven times in this chapter to remind the people of the manna that came down from heaven. Now he's the one who comes down from heaven and he gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. That might sound a little bit like understanding and maybe some faith. Is, we get, oh, there's some hope for the people here. But we know, as the chapter goes, we know the bigger story is that this crowd is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller as it goes. As Jesus continues to preach the truth of himself, it's going to get smaller and smaller as they go. And by verse 66, most of the people are walking away. Jesus could have left this conversation so much earlier. He's so patient, so kind. Can you imagine, like, bah, I've got more important things to do, like, and I've got a mission to accomplish, and he could have left it so much earlier, but that's not his nature. Do you know what the next verse or the next part of verse 17 in Nehemiah says? Nehemiah chapter 9, yes, God gave them water from a rock and bread from heaven. Still, they stiffened their necks. They denied the wonders of God. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, but you, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So that now, 550 years later, the I am, the Son of Man, stands in front of them, God in the flesh. God the Son is here offering himself, come down from heaven, the true bread of heaven, to give life abundantly. And it's astounding that God would meet the, the dead, hard, unbelieving hearts of people in this way. Aren't you thankful this morning that that's true about him? Aren't you grateful that, that he took a heart that the psalmist said was sinful from your mother's womb, independent, self-reliant, rebellious, demanding proof from God, creature standing before the creator saying, prove yourself. And he sends you bread in his son Jesus. Aren't you thankful this morning? 
So there is an invitation here. The crowds are confused. Jesus is clear. There's an invitation here in the last five verses, 35 to 40, to respond in faith to the eternal guarantee. Verse 35, if you did a kind of a roadmap of all 71 verses, uh, verse 35 is literally right in the middle, right? Do the math, it's right there. It's also the apex of this entire chapter. It's the reason why it's called the bread of life chapter right here, okay? Jesus says to them, all this discussion about bread from heaven, I'm going to, let me say it one more time, leaving no questions on the table. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. All this stuff we've been talking about, all this bread and feeding your, your stomach and versus feeding your soul and all that, all of that is me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Just a couple of verses up, they're saying, sir, give us this bread always. But now, because of Jesus' claim here, because Jesus used the same words that God used at the burning bush that, that, that Paul read earlier. God says, I am the I am. Moses says, who do I say sent me? Just say, the one who is sent you. I am. God is the sum and substance of all existence. He is the I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, anything follows, he's saying, I am God and I can make this come to be. His two conditions, his clear terms are two, come and believe. That's it. Come and believe. And at least six more times in John's gospel, he's going to use the same language and the same imagery to to show that he is the once and for all God in the flesh, one to give life to the souls of people, to once and for all satisfy our deepest hunger and our greatest thirst. You know them. I am the light of the world. Believe in me and you will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. That's in chapter 6. Chapter 8, I am the door. Enter through me. Be saved through me. Enter through the door. Enter the kingdom of God through that door. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Chapter 11, uh, at the the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says, that whole thing was about me. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me and you will live, not just today, but for all eternity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Chapter 14 and chapter 15, I am the vine. You are the branch. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Over and over again, Jesus says, I am meet your deepest need for salvation, for nourishment, for spiritual longing to know God, and it will be met in me abundantly, but only by faith, surrender, trust, coming to the end of yourself and trusting him, the one who promises us today, I am the bread of life. See, even as, even as Jesus hits them with hard truth, he just continues here to unpack the merciful, kind, sovereign promises of God. He says, you're not gonna believe because of signs or miracles or even because you have seen me. That's not the nature of the human heart, right? You, you and I know it very well. The human heart demands more, it demands proof. But that's almost always a smokescreen 
to our own stubborn will, right? It's a lack of desire to surrender our whole life to anything, let alone to, to Jesus. So how is it, look at verse 37, how is it that any human heart is going to believe? Well, Jesus makes it clear. There's a whole bunch of heavenly stuff going on here, more than meets the eye. He says, all that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you thankful this morning? He will never cast you out when you come. For I have come down from heaven, there's that phrase again, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. What a fantastic guarantee. You know that because God gave you to Jesus, that guarantee can't be broken. He is who he says he is. There's a ton more going on here. Here's the key. If you're going to believe, if you have believed or if you're going to believe, it's because the Father has drawn you. It's because the Father has reached into that heart that was rebellious and sinful, has taken hold of it, and Paul says in Titus, redeemed it, regenerated it, given it life so that it will go to Jesus. And there he will receive you for all eternity. Our salvation from sin, our entrance into a love relationship with God, if and when it happens, is the will of God. It depends fully and entirely on the sovereign moving of God. So let that sink in this morning for a minute. Just let it sink in. Let this picture stir your heart. If you have believed... Or if you're going to believe in Jesus, it's because the Father, the one who spoke all there is into existence, graciously grabbed hold of you by no design of your own, no merit or worth of your own, and he said, I'm going to give you to Jesus. And when he does that, Jesus stands ready to forgive, to receive, to save, to nourish, to satisfy our soul for ever. Two more verses. Jesus just adds more layers to the promise, the eternal guarantee. And and Pastor Micah will continue next week with this as well. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all of it that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. That's an eternal guarantee in the words of Jesus. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes comes and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, in case you didn't hear me the first time, he says it again, I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal guarantee, unbreakable promise. The last day here refers, as you probably know, to the end of the age, that future time. It's not really a day, it's a season when all will be consummated and completed. On that day, we already know from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 2 and Romans 6 that we have been raised up with Jesus. He says that by faith, when you put your trust in Jesus, you're raised from the dead with him. You're crucified with him and raised from the dead with him. But there's also going to be a future day when we are ultimately raised up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord so he also will raise you up by his power. What a day that'll be when you stand before Jesus and see him face to face. What this means is, is, and just rest in this today, church family. Rejoice in this reality that once the Father has given you over to Jesus, once he's given you to Jesus and you by faith have come to Jesus, then you will be forever kept by Jesus. 
and he will not lose you under any circumstances. The one who is the eternal satisfier of your soul, the one in whom you will never hunger, never thirst again. How will you respond to Jesus today? How will you respond to Christ? Will you, if, if you're that person that came in, just, I gotta figure this out, I gotta see what's up, will you, will you fall on your face and trust him for his mercy and his kindness and his goodness to release you from sin once and for all? There's a whole bunch of broken people in this room. You look good, and you do all look good this morning, but we're broken, we're needy, we're desperate. The person sitting next to you right now doesn't have it more together than you do. They just maybe have realized their need for Christ. Would you realize it this morning? If you, if you do, if that's you, I want to talk to you. I want to I hear your questions. I want to open the Bible and go, let's talk about Jesus. Let's, let's learn to love him together. Come and, come and introduce yourself and let me talk to you more. Or Christian believer, you've already walked in here and you're following Christ already, will you continue to trust Jesus all the more? Do you believe that you need to trust him more walking out the door than you came in the door? Well, yes, every one of us do. Every moment of our days to trust Jesus all the more, to surrender to him, to posture ourselves in humility before him. Will you delight to live under the all-satisfying rule and reign of Jesus on his terms and not your own. Do you see Jesus as the great I am? Or are you trying to make him into something else that will never satisfy? In him you will never hunger and thirst again. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness in Jesus. We trust you and we long to be satisfied in you, to have our affections stirred so that they're aligned with you, so that we're not chasing after counterfeit pleasures and all kinds of other things that, 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 that waste our soul's energy. May we as a church truly, passionately love Jesus together as we make him known. Help us with this, Lord, as we remember you all the more this morning, as we trust you, as we throw ourselves on your mercy over and over again to do the work of God, that is to trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to gather around the Lord's table again together this morning. And this isn't just doing church or ritual or some kind of exercise that um, it's us remembering. It's remembering Jesus in worship. Everything that we've pondered this morning that you would, that you would just go, thank you, Lord. And it's wrapped up in these, these two little elements of bread that represent his body and, and, and a cup of juice that re re represents his, his blood. May we exalt him simply for who he is. Our king loves and keeps us eternally. We worship and we thank him for who he is, the one who calls himself the bread of life, the living, the living water, the, the I am who saves us from sin. So as we pray and sing, let's give him glory together. Amen, church family? Let's give him glory and lift him high in our hearts. I want to invite ushers. Would you come forward to, to serve us? Thank you for the way you take care of us. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus yet, I encourage you, just pass on the elements. Don't, don't, there's, not, there's no ritual. There's no, nothing that's going to do for you to take communion. But instead, I would urge you again to surrender to Christ, to put your faith in Christ. And then take the elements 
to remember his blood-bought sacrifice for you on the cross. We're going to sing together. We're going to trust the Lord together. We're going to remember the Lord together. Amen.